0: Uh, Last week, we started a new teaching series through the book of the Bible um, called Romans. And what we learned is that Romans is actually not a book. It's a letter. It's written by a real person, a guy by the name of Paul, to a real group of flesh and blood human beings, um, the Roman Christians. Today, we're going to look at the next section, starting in verse 8. And in this section, we're going to get to know the author, Paul. Paul. We're going to get to see who he is and get to know him a little bit better. Now, Paul had a fire burning inside of him. In fact, that's what I've named this sermon, The Fire Inside. See, Paul was passionate. He was kind, intensely loving, incredibly intentional, brilliant, and yet he was the kind of guy who had been shaped, not just by his success, but also by his failure and pain. As he aged, I think you would have seen in his eyes the kind of wisdom and humility that comes from weathering life's greatest storms. And I think, had you spent any time with him at all, um, you would have seen that he lived with an incredible purpose. He had a fire burning inside of him. This is what a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit looks like. Even reading about him, studying his life, and um, you get to see his energy and his passion. And frankly, to me, he's a magnetic personality. I just want to know him more. And I think we can learn a lot from his life. Um, Heads up, today, we're going to talk about some stuff. And that's because Paul opens the door um, to address not just what the Christians in Rome were going through 2,000 years ago but what we are going through today. And I recognize we all live in the same world currently, but we also see it from completely different perspectives. And there are challenges that we face. And the Bible speaks directly to those. So buckle up, because we're going to go there. Romans 1, verse 8. You guys ready? Okay, that's like three of you are ready, and that's all I need is three of you. Because we're going to keep going. Okay, verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. As Paul begins to speak to the Roman church, he expresses his gratitude. Think about the tone of his letter. It's kind, it's honorable, it's direct, it's warm, it's personal. I'd be remiss if we didn't take a minute and stop and look at that and ask the question, why? What is he doing here? Well, Paul treats his audience as honorable, even though he is well aware of their weaknesses. Here's an interesting thing. If you study ancient documents, which I know all of you do that in your spare time, what you will learn is there were ancient commentators, one of them was named Quintilius, who actually wrote about the best and most honorable way to communicate when you start writing a letter because back then, believe it or not, honor was actually a cultural value. And we think we are more civilized today. According to scholars, Paul goes above and beyond the highest recommendation of honor. And this is what we learn from him four keys to honorable communication. If you're writing these down, write them down. Number 1, listening. Listening. Paul says your faith is being reported all over the world. Before Paul says anything to them, he listens to their story. He listens to what people are saying. He receives before he has anything to say. You've heard the phrase, we have to earn the right to be heard, right? Anyone? Yes. Thank you. Just checking if there's a pulse in the room. My friend and fellow pastor here, Mark Nicholas says, no, we actually have to earn the right to listen. I find it an incredible privilege when someone begins to share their thoughts and feelings with me, because it means that they have begun to trust me. (laughs) I wasn't always like this, by the way. Uh, I used to want to argue my point with everyone because I'm right and you're wrong, and I've thought through this. I listened, listened, so that I knew how to respond and prove you were wrong, but Jesus has shown me another way. This last week and a half has been tough. Um, Frankly, it has been tough week and a half in line of a couple years of tough. Um, The overturning of Roe v. Wade has stoked up all kinds of emotions in our culture and in our church. And on one side, you have a group of people, and predominantly women, when this ruling happened, who feel intensely that their rights have been stripped away and someone else has been told to them what they can or should do with their body. You may disagree, but you cannot choose to ignore them. You must listen. And on the other side, you have people, and myself included, who are celebrating rights to the unborn. And if you don't know what that and why someone would celebrate that, the same applies to you. Lean in and listen. We look for oversimplified solutions to incredibly complicated problems. And by the way, there's a whole industry that monetizes you to push you further away from each other, all the while never wanting a solution to actually be presented. Not so with you. If we will find a way forward, you must, I must listen. And in doing so, here, something the Lord taught me early on through COVID, he said these words to me when I was so frustrated with what I was seeing. And he said, I want you to cultivate compassion in your heart. I want you to choose to wait to speak, to sit on your anger and your frustration and your confusion until it transforms into compassion. Whew, that's tough. But you know when I said it, it's Jesus, right? How do you do that? Well, first you have to practice humility. None of us in this room have answers or the definitive answers to life's most difficult questions. Practice humility. The next is to pray. Before we speak, before we tell people what to do, pray. Do you notice that all of the responses that I just gave you and the first thing that Paul models here doesn't require you to say anything to anyone except God. We have got to get it out of our minds that it is our job to win, to convince someone that they are wrong, to change them in this instance. What Paul does here, what we must do today, is to build trust so that one day they may ask you the hope that you profess. That's just point one. We still got a long ways to go. The second thing he does is he chooses to see the best and not the worst in someone. Paul had heard of the strengths and the weaknesses of the Roman Christians, but he chose to share the highest honor with them. Often when our anger rises up, we can quickly look at the worst qualities of a person, stack them on top of each other, go on the offensive to prove why we are right and they are wrong. Just me? Nope. Instead, what if we took a moment to take a breath and to choose to acknowledge the good we see in them? Believe it or not, it actually helps someone hear what you have to say. <laughs> I know, shocking but it does. In today's climate, it is easy to reduce someone to a soundbite or clickbait. We have become incredibly adept at focusing on everyone's worst qualities and then posting about it. It is everywhere all the time. Human beings are more complicated and nuanced than that. Number three, Recognize the state of your relationships. Do you know at the time that Paul writes this letter, he had never been to Rome? <laughs> See, unlike Corinth or Galatia, where Paul spent years of his life, um, he writes a letter and knows that the things he's going to say will be received differently because of the state of his relationship. Go read the letters to the Corinthians. Go read Galatians. Paul is much more direct than he is here. The reason why is because he knows the state of his relationship. This can be the downside of technology, the downside particularly of social media, because we don't really even have to know someone and we can comment on their lives or their perception of their lives. See, I have friends who I have fascinating conversations with, you know. Some are just getting to know me, and they are still learning if they can trust me. But I know the state of our relationship. I know where we are at. We are still building trust. Sometimes they say things that honestly anger me, that hurt me. They assume I believe something that I don't. Anyone ever been there? How I respond, how I engage is based on the state of our relationship. But then I have other friends. Friends I can know I can say the hard things to. Even if it hurts a little bit. Friends I can bear my own soul with because I know the state of our relationship. There is trust between us. Hmm. Fourth thing, take time to craft your words. (laughs) When I think about the letters Paul writes, Romans seems like he took the most time to put pen to paper. It's the most eloquent of Paul's letters. Sometimes, and this is my imagination at work, but I think Paul is like, in some of his letters, like on a donkey, bouncing around, like scribbling as fast as he can and be like, this church is a mess. I got to get something to them as fast as I can. That is not... Romans. Romans reads like Paul sat in front of pen, paper, went to write something and then stopped and paced and prayed and thought and questioned and found community and grabbed them and wrestled an idea out together and then walked over and then, ah, no, and, and then he went back to it. He was thoughtful. He was intentional. He took time. In today's day and age, we can fire off our opinions in a matter of seconds. Something happens. We don't even have to fact check it. In fact, most of the time we don't. We don't say, where was that study or where did that come from? We just respond. We repost. As long as it fires us up, it justifies us to say something. All the while not recognizing that that actually changes us. It reshapes our brains and changes the way we relate to one another. What if we took more time to think about how we were to comment on what's going on in the world? What if we took more time to think about how we would respond when we see someone we love or someone we don't even know do something or say something that we don't agree with? What if we took more time to pause, to pray and process before we spoke? You know what I don't think the world needs any more of? Opinions. (laughs) That's my opinion, by the way. (laughs) I think what the world really needs and longs for is wisdom. And you know what wisdom is first? Be slow to speak, be quick to listen. Amen is right. I wonder how long it took Paul to put these words together and how many times he pastes and thought. And I don't think they had erasers, but if they did, what is that like eraser residue on your paper? I would imagine his desk would have been filled with it. So why does Paul go through all of this work to craft his communication in this way? Well, this is why. Verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul is going to do his best to build them up with his words in this letter, but he knows that there's limitations. He is using the technological equivalents of the day. Reading, writing, Roman roads to transport the letter, similar to how we have used technology to stay connected over the last two and a half years. And yet, he says that there is no substitute for being together. Church Online, I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) But... These are tools that we can use to build up who we are, but they are not substitutes. Please lean in to real flesh and blood people. Paul says that ministry flows both ways. That it isn't just Paul assuming he has something to give to the church, but a belief that when he comes, the church has something to give back to him that's important. Last night, my oldest daughter, Scarlett, she loves to contribute to every sermon that I have ever given. Um, Sometimes her stuff hits the cutting room floor, and sometimes it makes it. But we were talking about the message last night, and um, I I always pray for her before I go to bed. Sometimes my prayer is like this, Jesus, please help her sleep through the night and not get out of her bed. Amen, right? (laughs) Uh, Less so for her these days and more for her sisters. But last night, We prayed together for a while. And um, in fact, she goes, Dad, tonight's prayer was a really long one. (laughs) But why I was praying for her was um, inspired by this text, which is this. Scarlett, God has a purpose for you when you gather with your church tomorrow. He actually has something for you to give to someone, a classmate, a teacher, eyes to see maybe the kid that's left out, the kid that maybe doesn't have the home life that you have. You, girl, have the spirit of God inside of you. You're here for a purpose. But also, Scarlett, you're here to receive. Someone has something to give to you, too. Have eyes to see, have ears to hear what someone may deposit inside of you. You know that that is true for every single one of you that are here today. I said it earlier, God has something for you to receive. But I actually believe he has something for you to give as well. And and what I think is important is that we lean into that. And I know it doesn't just happen when we gather on a Sunday, right? This happens at the coffee shop. It happens when we share a meal together. It's when you put your shoulder around someone who's having a hard time. When someone comes and helps me mow my lawn (laughs) and we're doing a project together. When you're helping someone move, when you watch someone's kids, there's a million different ways this manifests. But his point is when we are together, we have the opportunity to build each other up. What's the opposite of being built up? Being torn down. We we've we've have all become all too familiar with that. Jackie Hill Perry, she, uh, she writes a brilliant and long quote, and I'm going to read it to you, and I think you'll think it is as well. Um, incredibly important for the time we're in. She says this, The amount of social pressure to add commentary to every current event is interesting. It's as if we believe a post is the primary proof of one's theological and sociopolitical position. To me, sometimes it seems that certain hot takes are less about the event itself and more about how one's response to that event categorizes them. A social media post becomes a tribal marker, a gang sign, and an anthem from which side you represent. Not only that, these social pressures create an environment of performance and virtue signaling. A post becomes a tap dance, an act, a stage play attended by hundreds of strangers. Keep dancing and they'll applaud. What's happening to us is that we are thinking that by making a post, it is a sufficient means of changing the world and the place to be affirmed by people who don't even know our middle names. Meanwhile, we're just talking and doing nothing. Nothing. What if the first place we went with our celebration and our outrage was to an embodied community made up of flesh and blood? People we know who we can touch, hug, pray, and protest with. What if our words stayed at home first? A place where nuance, thoughtfulness, and wisdom could shape them. None of this is to say we shouldn't speak, but we should be slow in doing so. If and when silence seems to be the wiser option, may it be because your words found a refuge away from the applause. Whoa. Right? Mic drop. I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. I'm not done, actually. I still have a little ways to go. Much of our discipleship to Jesus has become disembodied. We rely on content, social media posts, podcasts, books, and videos, none of which are bad in and of themselves, but they are no substitute for the embodied community of faith. We do these things, and they're good, but only to build up our community, not in place of it. As my friend Nate says, take your online friendships offline. By the way, With the exception of a few people, as I said this before, Paul has met on his travels. He actually doesn't know them yet. There isn't some deep relational intimacy first. There is one thing in common that they have, and that is fidelity to the Lord Jesus. That is their starting place, and then relationships must be built. So Paul... He writes and shares his desires to be with them, but Paul has been trying to get to Rome for a while, and the door just keeps shutting in his face. Let's read verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have prevented, been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had a harvest among other Gentiles. If you know the story of Paul, this kind of thing actually happens quite a bit. This week, you should go back and read his conversion story. But Paul meets Jesus, and his entire life is turned upside down and right side up. Jesus then proclaims he will be um, God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel all over the Roman Empire. Greeks and non-Greeks, which is Paul's way of saying everybody. Many people thought Jesus must have made the wrong choice. After all, do you know who this man was? Nevertheless, the once zealous persecutor of Jesus and murderer of people in his church almost immediately turns around, walks into the city, and starts preaching boldly that Jesus is in fact who he says he is, and he was in fact wrong. (laughs) And it doesn't go very well for him. (laughs) He causes such a ruckus that he is literally smuggled out of the city, and the text reads, and the church finally had peace because he's gone. He ends up probably in Arabia. Maybe he traveled to some other places, but you actually really don't hear about Paul for somewhere between eight and fourteen years. At best, he was in like one of the roughest regions of the empire, trying to preach to brigands and pirates. At worst, he wasn't doing that at all. He was just making tents for the Romans a far cry from the house on the hill in Jerusalem and the prominent seat in the Sanhedrin that his previous life had offered. Where would he go with all of this passion and no position? Without authority, without a title, without support, no financial backing, stripped of everything, who is Paul? This would become a theme in his life. He's eager to move forward, but he is almost always held back from doing so. And do you know who the culprit is? Do you know who the one person who is always holding Paul back? God. Read it yourself if you don't believe me. The Holy Spirit prevented me from going here. God did not see it fit to open the door to go there. Paul has a motor. He is always trying to go, and God is continually shaping him as he waits. My uh, youngest daughter is one. Her name is Merritt. She's so cute. But like most one-year-olds, she likes to go places and do things that you should not do at one years old. Um, <laughs> she likes to swim. She likes the pool. And I'll go sit with her in the pool. And she has so much fun. Her face lights up and she's thrashing about. But it takes about 30 seconds where she thinks that dad is holding her back from the most fun she can possibly have. She wants me to let go so she can go face first into the water and drown. She thinks that's going to be fun, but she is not ready for the pool without her father. See, this is the reality sometimes of what waiting on God looks like. We think we are ready. After all, I have a vision for it. Ready to go. And God says, You're not ready. Trust me, I will let you go when you are ready. This is what's amazing is Paul does make it to Rome three years after this letter arrives. We've been in COVID for two and a half years-ish. Feels like forever. I am not the same person I was when it started. Three years is no short period of time where you and I can become very different people. And the way, by the way, the way Paul gets there to Rome is not the way he thought he would get there. He's like shipwrecked. He's a prisoner. When he writes this, he was free. Three years later, he's a prisoner, (laughs) but he arrives in Rome. Different circumstances, but here's what happened. The very end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, says this. The brothers and the sisters there had heard that we were coming, they're in Rome, by the way, and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. In the waiting, Paul became a different kind of person. The passion, the fire inside of him was shaped. But also, God was at work preparing the Romans to receive him. See, it wasn't in the timeline of Paul. He wanted to go sooner. Perhaps it wasn't in the timeline for the Romans. They would have welcomed him sooner. And yet, the Lord is at work preparing Paul did not know them. They did not know him. They don't have Twitter. They don't have phones. They don't have the internet. And yet somehow in those three years, through these letters, they became family. Hmm. Let's keep going. We good? All right. Great. You guys are great. You may not be excited in the first next few minutes, but here we go. Verse 14, I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. In verse 14, we read the English word obligated. And in the Greek, it's ophioletus. And it means this, one held by some obligation, bound by some duty. So Paul is indebted to whom and why. If you remember last week, um, or if you haven't listened to last week, please go back, because this will make more sense if you do. We are servants, doulos, of the Lord, kurios, Christ Jesus. Right? And as a servant of Jesus, we are bound to obey his will. And get this, Jesus is interested in reaching everyone not just the Greeks, and not just the non-Greeks, not just the Republicans, and not just the Democrats, not just the pro-choice, and not just the pro-life, not just the pro-vax or the anti-vax, not just the pro-mask or the anti-mask, not just the pro-CRT or the anti-CRT. I could go on and on, but I think you get me. Paul looks at the broadest and most common categorization of division of people at his time, Greek and non-Greek. And he is saying there is no excuse for leaving anyone out. He isn't looking for the winning or losing team, and we shouldn't either. And that could frustrate you because it means nothing as simple as this one is right and this one is wrong. You never see Jesus behaving this way. And you will never see Paul either. Do you remember the words of the angels in the Christmas story? I bring you good news that will cause great joy for only the people that agree with me. No. Good news that will cause great joy for all the people. All of them. And Jesus compels him to share the good news. That is, after all, what the word gospel means, good news, with everyone. And by the way, this is not just for Paul. Church, we cannot reduce ourselves to a voting block. We cannot take sides. And we are not in this to win the argument. Because to win means there are losers, Jesus did not say, go into all the world and make losers of all nations. No. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Not just of the people that you agree with or you think are right. We are servants of Christ Jesus, obligated to take the good news of Jesus to everyone. That is the fire that burns inside of us if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, if there is anything in our life that burns hotter, we need to repent because that is not the way of Jesus. He ends this section by saying something that should encourage all of us. Good news. He says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A lot here, but a word I want to zoom in on as we close. There's a Greek word for not ashamed, ua episkunima. It means to feel no shame for something. Paul feels no shame because he knows how good the gospel of Jesus is. And he knows it is for the best of everyone who hears it. But here's the thing that's encouraging for you he also knows that some people will think it's weird and impossible, <laughs> that you will be misunderstood, miscategorized, not represented. You know, the church in the first century, they were called cannibals by the culture at the time because they took communion, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. The Romans didn't know what to do with that, so they said they were cannibals. They called each other brothers and sisters. And then they met at these things called agape feasts. They were love fests where the church came together and they shared everything they had so no one was without need. And the culture didn't know what to do with it. They thought they were incestuous because they didn't know what happened at these love feasts. Some of them just thought they were some weird religious sect of Judaism to be ignored. The reality is is that they knew, Paul knew, that they would be misunderstood. And sometimes shame can come with the sense that I will be misunderstood, be encouraged. You do not need to feel shame for the hope you have. Paul also knew that some people will think there's just better alternatives offered by the empire. You know, Rome had a gospel. It was called the gospel of Pax Romana, Roman peace. Rome had a Lord, their name was Caesar. Caesar was called the prince of peace and the son of God. There was Roman propaganda that said there is no name under heaven by which man can be saved other than Caesar. Rome, powered pro- Rome promised peace and prosperity as long as you followed the Roman way, which was peace offered through force by the edge of a sword. And Rome was really okay with you worshiping whomever as long as your allegiance was first and only to the empire. This was only good news if you were a Roman citizen, by the way. It wasn't good news if you were a conquered people. This is why Christians were treated so poorly in the Roman Empire for a long time. Not because their worship was to another god other than Caesar, but because their allegiance was to another king other than Caesar. Their allegiance was to another kingdom other than the empire. Jesus and his kingdom would bring true peace to the earth, not by the edge of a sword through force, but by the cross. And it would be made up of all people not conquering them through force, forcing them to a false peace, but uniting them with self-sacrificial love. This is the message that Paul proclaimed. It was the reality that he lived by, and it was the fire inside of him that kept him going. And Jesus invites you and I to live with that same fire inside of us too. So as tradition here, we end with a prayer benediction, which is a prayer of blessing. If you would stand with me, and if you're comfortable, would you open your hands? And the point of this is to pray God's blessing onto you. So if you want to receive that, just open your hands and I'll pray for you. May you be a people that choose to honor one another. May you be a people sent to build each other up and our communities up instead of tear them down. And may you be a people who wait well and trust in the work of the king of the universe. And may you be a people obligated and unashamed to share the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> hey, we have some people in here who have an orange name tag. There's some elders in our community. If you need prayer for anything, please grab one of them if you see them. Come to the info center if you're new. We'd love to get, help you get connected. Have a great 4th of July weekend. We love you guys. Peace.